Father, we praise you tonight for your holiness. We embrace your holiness. We thank you, Lord, that you have found a way not only to be holy, but to share your holiness with us. In the death of our Savior upon the cross in his resurrection, and in the provision of your Holy Spirit to come into our lives. And Lord, as we watch the needless chaos and anarchy that inevitably surrounds unholiness in the world all around us, in our personal lives and relationships all the way to national and international, we're so thankful to be able to turn to your book and to further build our lives, Lord, on the foundation that never changes, on the God who never changes, the, fa- the things that are never going to shame or disappoint. And we pray, Lord, that you would meet with us by your Holy Spirit as we study your word tonight and make these chapters that we look at tonight a lifelong friend to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. First Chronicles chapter 21 this evening, and if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now, they do have Bibles, and if you just wave and get their attention, they'll get one into your hands so that you can follow along with us, not only with your ears, but also with your eyes. We'll look to cover some territory tonight, so this will really be needed for um, some semblance of coherence on what it is that I'm about to do here. We stop mid-chapter uh, at the end of chapter 17 of, or verse 17 of chapter 21 last week, and God's judgment has fallen upon the nation of Israel, and uh, for uh, a fault on David's part because of his numbering of the people out of his pride, and it was a military census, and so his uh, drifting a little bit from realizing that the true security of a nation is not its military, uh, but uh, their relationship with God and their trust in God. God had promised the children of Israel that he would make them in number as the sand of the sea. And all David needed to do was just trust that promise. He didn't need to go and count the people. And he moved from faith to sight. And so a part of this judgment that was coming upon Israel was as a result of his individual sin. But there is a second thing that was playing out among God's people and that God was judging some sin of the nation of Israel itself, the people of Israel. The sin is unnamed. We can kind of speculate as we did last week that it might in fact be God was judging those who had joined Absalom in his rebellion against David, though God had never called Absalom to be king. It was a revolt and a rebellion not only against David but against God and against his position in the nation and he might have just gone very selectively through the land and brought judgment on those that had caused such uh, widespread shedding of blood unnecessarily in, in that rebellion. We don't really know, but this, that's what's unfolding is that, that judgment. And God came to uh, David and offered him three choices for the form that the judgment would take and asked him to choose either three years of famine, three months, verse 12, of being defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else three days, the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. David said, I don't want to make that choice. I certainly don't want to put my hand, my life in the hands of men. I'll put my life in the hands of God. And so, God, you make the choice, and God made the choice of the plague. And as that angel of the Lord has gone in judgment throughout the land, 70,000 men have been judged and destroyed. And now the angel of the Lord has come to the city of Jerusalem itself. And as we read there in verses 14 and 15, about to destroy the city itself. And so this is where we find ourselves now. And David 
crying out in prayer to the Lord saying, this is all my fault, why doesn't the judgment fall on me, why does it fall on innocent people? But he didn't realize that there was a bigger picture than his life involved, that uh, others were not innocent as well. And therefore the angel, verse 18, of the Lord commanded Gad, one of the prophets in that day, to go and speak to David, that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And so David, in obedience to this direction from the Lord, uh, by the prophet Gad, which he had spoken, he went up and uh, to Ornan. And uh, so David went up at the word uh, of Gad. If those of you have been to Israel, <clears throat> you know that this, where this event is going to take place is where the temple on the temple mount and the ancient city of David is down in a lower place so David has to hike up kind of a little bit higher up Mount Moriah in order to come to this threshing floor and so David makes that uh, that hike up on the higher ground to meet with Ornan there and so Ornan turned and he saw, uh, as David went up to see him, Ornan turned and saw the angel of judgment and his four sons who were with him. They hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. So uh, evidently the four sons uh, saw the angel immediately and they ran and hid. <laughs> you want to see an angel, you have your tennis shoes on because you might go running out of the room or out of the house. Apparently, Ornan uh, didn't see the angel immediately and he just continued to thresh wheat. It's an interesting thing uh, related to Ornan here because this great judgment is falling upon Israel and it's a great righteous judgment. And yet here is its 70,000 dead. The judgment's about to come uh, to Jerusalem. And what do we find Ornan doing? He's out threshing his wheat. He's just doing that day what he would do on any other day if there wasn't judgment on the world or judgment on the nation of Israel. And it really does uh, come a place as we face problems that are going on in the world or situations going on in the world that are just way, way bigger than any of us have a voice in. Uh, we have no part ultimately in the solution of it. And so we think to ourselves, what do we do? Well, we should do what we would normally do the next day anyway and that is in our little sphere of influence and our little place in the world to do what we know is the next thing we should do the right thing that should be done and then commit the large picture to God and I like this picture of Ornan here he just focuses on where can I make a difference he makes that difference and then he trusts the Lord to make a difference of that in the big picture and so here is this uh, uh, going on and ultimately David came, verse 21, to Ornan and Ornan looked and he saw David and recognizes, of course, this is the king and so he went out from the threshing floor he bowed down showing great respect to David as the king with his face all the way to the ground and David said to Ornan grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord you shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. And so David makes his request here and he makes known, I have come basically under the direction of the Lord to buy your threshing floor in order to build an altar to the Lord to bring an end uh, to this plague. And Ornan then said to David, take it to yourself, it's free. And let my lord the king do what is right in his own eyes. Look, I give you the oxen for burnt offering, the threshing implements of wood, the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all to you. And then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. And so David uh, respectfully declined the offer. And he knew that it wouldn't be right for him to offer something to the Lord that the only sacrifice represented in it was a sacrifice by Ornan. And so David lets Ornan know that he could never 
offer anything to the Lord that didn't cost him something uh, personally. And so a sacrifice is not a sacrifice unless it represents sacrifice. And so David wanted this to be something that was a sacrifice to him to offer to the Lord. And so David understood both an Old Testament principle and a New Testament principle, and that is that God always uh, measures the size of the gift not on the basis of the amount that is given, but on the basis of the sacrifice that that amount represents. And someone, someone can be a billionaire and give a thousand dollars to the Lord, and it is a, doesn't represent a sacrifice at all. Somebody else, as Jesus spoke about the woman who put her two mites, uh, tiny little less than a penny both of them together in the offering to the Lord and that was that was bread that should have gone into her mouth that day and the Lord spoke to the disciples and said she has given more than everyone else that's given this day again because God rec recognized it or he assessed it in terms of its value uh, relative to the sacrifice and so David wanted to give something to the Lord that represented a sacrifice to him commendable for him important for us as well and so David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place that's the payment that he gave and David built there an altar to the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and he called on the Lord. We remember from the law of Moses that a burnt offering was an offering of consecration, of surrendering my life fully to God. And so that's what David is doing here. Peace offerings were fellowship offerings with the Lord. So basically, he's communicating to God on his own behalf and on behalf of the nation. We consecrate ourselves fully to you once again, and we declare that the relationship with you is very, very important to us. And this was done in the form of, of offering. So in those days, you know, a lot was done in terms of the imagery. Uh, things were reinforced in terms of physically something being done in the offerings. Uh, those two offerings communicated that. And then the Lord, showing his acceptance of the offerings, he answered David's prayer and the offerings from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. And so he consumed supernaturally those offerings. And so the Lord commanded the angel who had uh, returned, and he commanded the angel, and the angel returned his sword to his sheath and uh, bringing an end to uh, the plague. And so uh, this. God's response to these offerings is a clear indication that this plague was on the land in some way because uh, of disobedience and God had accepted this sacrifice. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he then sacrificed uh, more fully there for the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering which Moses had made in the wilderness, those were at that time in the high place in, the, in Gibeon. But David would not give, go before it to Gibeon ever again to inquire of the Lord, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 22 really goes with chapter 21. And then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. At that moment, uh, with the Lord's acceptance of his sacrifices for his own sin and for the sins of the nation, David realized that uh, this threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite was to become, it was God's choice to become the future site of the temple that was to be built by David. Remember, God had promised to David that a temple would be built and it would be built by his son, but up to this point in time, nobody knew the location of where God wanted it to be located. Uh, related to the city of Jerusalem and in all of this somehow God reveals that uh, to David and and thus he continued to sacrifice there at that place from that moment onward even though between the time of this event and the building of of the temple itself worship continued to happen with the Lord at Gibeon but David realizing that this was God's selection for the temple 
out of fear and reverence, respect for that choice, uh, David refused to worship or inquire of the Lord any other, uh, any other place. And so uh, this beautiful picture of where the Lord located the temple. And uh, uh, fascinating that the temple would, uh, is, was to be built on a mount called Mount Moriah in the city of Jerusalem. There's a little ringing in this that's distracting me a little bit if we can take that out. Um, but the temple, mount, the temple is built on a mount that's known as Mount Moriah and this uh, Mount Moriah, the location, was a place that had great, great biblical significance earlier in Israel's history in that it was where God spoke to Abraham and told him to take his son Isaac uh, to Mount Moriah and he said take thy son thy only son whom thou lovest to offer as a sacrifice the Lord never intended that he would offer the sacrifice but he was kind of a type or a picture one of the great pictures of the Old Testament of the fact that on that same mount God himself would offer his son his only son whom he loved for the forgiveness of our sins which moved it into the future from this event and that it was Jesus was crucified on the same mount Mount Moriah and so here is this place of uh, really where a couple of David's greatest failures all come together in the building of the temple number one here uh, God reveals the location of the temple to him following his great sin of numbering the people God has the temple to be built by his son Solomon who was the product of probably the greatest sin in his life uh, his uh, adultery with Bathsheba that then uh, resulted in the death of Uriah the Hittite and then that child died as a result of their adultery with him and Bathsheba but Solomon then became a product of their marriage and so here all of this comes together here everything associated with the temple everything surrounding it related to David's life is something where God is overwhelming his sin and working it together for good and it's just reminds me that God and Jesus really is a sinner's savior and so uh, a beautiful beautiful picture in the Old Testament even in the locating of where the temple was to be built and so when you go to if you go to Jerusalem or you go to Israel and you see where the temple uh, used to be and where one day it'll be rebuilt by the Antichrist, unfortunately, and then it'll give way to a, a, a millennial temple. But you see pictures and all, and you wonder, well, why did it end up being built there? It ended up being built there be, through this event. God uh, uh, declared that he wanted that uh, temple of Solomon to be built in that particular location. Chapter 22, verse 2. And then so David commanded to gather the aliens. And so here we have now the commandment. God has given uh, David the commandment that the temple is uh, to be built. The site of the temple has now been revealed by the Lord to David. Uh, the site has been acquired. It's been purchased. And so now what do you do after you know all of those things? You begin the preparations for the building of the temple. David's a crack up to me um, in, in this whole event because God has told him, you can't build the temple. Your son is going to build the temple. And we'll see in a few moments the reason God wouldn't let him build the temple is there was too much blood on his hands because of the wars. It wasn't, he wasn't guilty of you know, bloodshed in terms of the warfare and all. These were defensive wars that were fought for the existence of the nation of Israel. And even though David was a vastly more spiritual man than Solomon, you couldn't call Solomon late in his life a spiritual man at all, God chose that Solomon would build the temple because during Solomon's reign Israel would know no wars and God wanted his temple to be associated with peace and so David was rejected for the building of the temple which would have been a dream for him to do and so David does everything but build the temple <laughs> so you see I can't build the temple doesn't mean I can't plan everything associated with it and gather every single material that will be needed to build it. He does everything short of starting that building project. 
And it's really a beautiful thing about David. Here he is, you think about him, he's an older man now and he's been a king forever and ever. He's got more money, money he doesn't care about. He, 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 power and money didn't mean anything to David. David was a lover of God and he stayed faithful to God's calling upon his life to be the king even through his mistakes and his failures. All that really mattered to David was to worship the Lord and to walk with the Lord. And so here God says you can't build the temple and so David looks and says alright I'll do whatever I can to make it e as easy as possible for my son to build it in other words he doesn't care who gets the credit for it he doesn't care whose name ends up on the temple or goes down in history is building the temple and all the egos that can get involved in God's work not only on a grandest scale as this but even in a local church the fighting that can go on and how people won't do this because they'll get the credit and then I will do this because I and the, all that sick kind of thing that can go on and ruin everything none of that was in David's heart all he cared about that there was just some little way in which he had a place to further the work of God in human history didn't care who got the credit and he just stepped up and and he did it and so he begins to prepare and so David commanded to gather the aliens the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed them, uh, appointed masons to begin to cut the hewn stones that would be necessary to build the house of God. And these are gigantic uh, stones. And so they had taken uh, uh, slaves uh, from warfare out of these surrounding nations, many of them who had expert uh, stone masons. And so he began to put them to work on, on putting together the great stones that would need, be needed. David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints and bronze in abundance beyond measure so the iron and bronze he began to accumulate was something that was so great you couldn't even keep count of it the cedar trees in abundance for the Sidonians and those from Tyre brought much cedar wood to David so he began to purchase cedar wood that would be needed from these northern nations and David said Solomon my son is young and inexperienced and the house to be built for the Lord is must be exceedingly magnificent famous and glorious throughout all of the countries I will now make preparations for it and so David made abundant preparations before his death and so David looked at this temple and the the beauty of the temple that was ultimately built it wasn't just for the sake of ornateness or beauty David looked and, and this was built under the direction of the Lord uh, to be something that would just kind of take your breath away related to uh, the temples of the ancient world not so much that people would be drawn to the, the uh, beauty of the building but that they would realize that the God of Israel is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords He is the God of all the earth and so this was David's desire is that somehow this structure would communicate that to the ancient world and so he made these uh, kind of preparations and so he said concerning Solomon, he's too young and too inexperienced. Solomon was very young at that point in time to have the expertise that would be required to plan a building uh, like this and to provide a temple that was suitable for the Lord. And so, uh, is, so David provided all of those things. And they were kind of complementary. I mean, as, as fully as David was not the man to build the temple, Solomon was not the man to plan it. And so it required both the father and the son for all of this to come together. And we see the same thing in the local body and any church you want to look at. No one person can do everything. It's by design. So that uh, as each person does what they're called to do, it, it, we're likened to a body, it, the body of Christ, the human body. The hand has its responsibility, the eye has its responsibility, the foot has its responsibility. Everybody needs each other. So there's no, um, it's not a competing kind of environment in the body of Christ or between David and Solomon. It was complementary. Both of them, as they would do what God had called them to do, then the whole thing would, would come together. And then David called for his son Solomon 
And he charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And so here is this public charge now to build the temple. And David said to Solomon publicly, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. And his name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son. I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom uh, over Israel forever. And so David is uh, recounting publicly to Solomon that this is the word that I had from the Lord. You're ordained now to do this. And uh, uh, this responsibility to build. And now, my son, may the Lord be with you. May you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God as he has said to you. So it's like David looks at this whole thing and his greatest concern isn't, uh, listen, don't fritter away the empire that I've put together. You know, keep the Moabites under your thumb. Keep the Syrians that we had to defeat three times to get them to stop attacking us and the Philistines under your thumb. That, none of that mattered to David. He knew, Solomon, you build this temple, and then on top of building that temple, give God, verse 12, your obedience, and everything else is going to take care of itself. That's all that David cared about, is that when he was gone, and it's, it's the only desire of any godly parent, is that when we are gone, that the things of the Lord that we spent our lives building into our children and the work that we gave ourselves to, that that would continue on in their generation. And so he exhorts and encourages Solomon, may, only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. And so he's always with Solomon coming back to telling him, obey the word, obey the word, obey the law, because you can build that big, beautiful temple that's going to be built. And if you don't couple that with obedience, God isn't going to join himself there and he will abandon it, which is what the Lord ultimately did and ultimately what Solomon did as, as well. And so David, though, he understands the temple is nothing to God apart from our obedience, and so he charged him to obey the Lord. And then if you obey the Lord, you will prosper. If you take care to fulfill the statutes and the judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel, prosperity comes out of obedience. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So the importance of obedience, but he's a young man and he needed to be encouraged to, be, to have courage and be strong and not to give way to fear or disappointment and move forward with what God had called him to do. Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare, and prepare is the word here for this section of Scripture, preparation. Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold. That is 3,750 tons of gold David accumulated for the building of the temple and the conquests of the other nations and the trading and the prosperity of the nation itself. And, and that's what he had accumulated for, for the uh, project. It's nice to go into a building project um, having that kind of a budget. And then on top of the gold, one million talents of silver. So 37,500 tons of silver. You figure out what it's worth today. You'll need a something. It won't burn up trying to measure the number. And then bronze and iron beyond measure. For it was so abundant you couldn't even put a number on the amount of bronze and iron he had accumulated. I have prepared timber and stone also and, and you may add to them. And moreover, not only the physical materials for the building of the temple, David also prepared the workforce that would be needed. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, woodsmen, 
and stone cutters and all types of skillful men for every kind of work, every gift, every talent and skill that's needed. I've rounded them up and put them in place. Of gold and silver and bronze and iron, there is no limit. Arise and begin working and the Lord be with you. So David realized as um, any father of a young son realizes concerning their son, we can prepare, all this can be accumulated, the plans can be there, the vision from God can be there, but until there comes that moment in time where a person decides, I'm going to rise up, obey God, and do what he's called me to do, all that other stuff would just go to waste. And so Solomon needed to stand up and needed to move forward, and David now charged him to do that. Otherwise, the temple would have never been built. And David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon, his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. So now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Therefore, arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. And so David reminded the leaders of the nation, you have been in a period of peace. You will have a long period of peace under Solomon. Don't fritter that time away. Use it to do something great for God instead of just wasting the time and, and, uh, uh, and, and not doing something uh, great for the Lord. Those time, this time of prosperity that they were in, they weren't to look at it and say, all right, this is a time where we can just kind of uh, dip down into our own selfishness and just eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die. This, a, a period of peace and prosperity is a time for God's people to realize this is not a moment for selfishness. This is a moment for doing something great for God. And uh, I fear that we have frittered away a very key period of time in our recent history in this vein. Not entirely, but uh, too much went into materialism for too long uh, while there was a period to, to do something great. Chapter 23. of, uh, And so David, when he was old and full of days, that means he's getting close to dying. This is a nice way to put it. Old and full of days. And he made his that he made his son Solomon king over Israel, and he gathered together all of the leaders of Israel with the priests and with the Levites. And so David has this kind of um, public uh, assembly here to uh, make Solomon king, and they kind of operated as co-regents for a short period of time, and uh, while Solomon was getting his feet uh, under him, and so David you know, started this whole process publicly. The leaders of, of Israel uh, were invited uh, uh, in verse 2, gathered together also with the priests and all of the Levites. And then beginning in verse 3 of chapter 23, all the way through chapter 27, we have a record of David uh, getting things in order so that the... Uh, work of the Lord would continue on smoothly, kind of decently in an order uh, after uh, his ministry had come to an end. Again, he's drawing on all of his long years of experience and knowledge to do this right before uh, he you know, goes to be with the Lord rather than leaving all of it to a far less experienced uh, Solomon. And so he looks at this and he realizes, all right, my son's going to build a temple. And uh, just as he prepared then the uh, materials for the building of the temple, he also uh, put in place a suitable structure to ensure that the worship associated with the temple would be done decently and in order. So there was some structure that's needed where you have large numbers of people coming to gathering in Jerusalem to worship the Lord at the temple. And uh, so there has to be some kind of structure in place uh, in order that it doesn't become carnal or, or just uh, uh, devolves into chaos. So it's always a fine balance, I think. It always is for us. It's an issue of prayer all the time because 
we try and you have to have some structure in a church it's like a body uh, you got to have a skeletal system if I didn't have a skeletal system I'd be a, just this heap of a big glob uh, on right up here but when you got a greeter at one of the side doors and they greet you you don't want to get you don't want to greet a skeleton you want to shake hands with flesh and blood so you got to have the flesh and blood you got to have you still got to have some order some skeleton on the thing too but we realize that the more structure and order that you add or the more rules or policies of those things that's more that you're taking out of the direct control of the Holy Spirit so we try to minimize that so that this work really stays a work of the Holy Spirit uh, if you uh, don't have confidence that this church is on at least on the level that we understand how it to be is under the control of the Holy Spirit, let me assure you, if he lifted his hand off of this, it would cease to exist in two weeks. Uh, we do not have the strength to uh, pretend to do the work of the Holy Spirit, and we don't have any interest in like putting a bunch of rules together and policies, and like, every loose end is tied up. We want to leave as much as we can in the Holy Spirit. But there needs to be some structure. Some people just balk against any structure any policy at all. You have to have a little bit of that in place. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, who tried church without any structure. <laughs> they weren't doing God a favor. So Paul wrote to them and he said, let all things be done decently and in order. Further, he said to that church, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches uh, uh, of the saints. So you should never come to a church and and it, like somebody gets there and goes, all right, who's doing worship tonight? Who's in the fourth grade classroom? <laughs> you have to have some order. I think it's really dishonoring to the Lord if there isn't at least some order and structure on that level. One of my favorite statements that's made of Jesus in all of the Bible is it was declared concerning him, he has done all things well. Everything should be done as well as it possibly can be to represent the attitude of Jesus toward the work of the Father. And so David is going to put all of this kind of stuff in place. The temple's there, but man, a temple is just a building. If you don't have people serving the Lord and greeting other people, and this isn't, it, it, it's like this building. This is a great building. It's a wonderful building. We're thankful for the building. But it, this building would just be sitting on 17 acres all alone if the people didn't show up. So you have to have the people coming, all that happens by God's Spirit through His people in order to really have the worship of the Lord. And so David said, all right, the physical is set in place. I'm going to put this other side uh, thing in place too so that it all runs decently and in order when that temple is built and I'll take care of it uh, for my son. And so he establishes some structure here. And whenever I see that kind of structure in a local church, it always communicates to me somebody cares. If I walk onto a church ground someplace and there's litter all over the place and weeds growing up all around the everything and there's, this is all tattered and torn and this and that, I just think, wow, I wonder if somebody cares around here. And if they don't care about that, then do they care about the bigger issues in the fellowship? And so it, it, it communicates that somebody cares. Now, part of this is going to be kind of tedious for a certain kind of person. I ask that you don't walk out. Uh, uh, just because it is, it'll be good discipline for you. But some of us love chapters like this in the Bible. And unfortunately, your pastor is one of those people. I, um, I love things to be done decently and in order. Ooh, I just can't wait till we get into all of this. I remember when Karen and I went to Disneyland one time as a kid. We went on like three rides. The lines were unbelievably long. It was just incredible. They had the D tickets and the E tickets and all of that. I think it was right when it opened probably. you know. So. And then the next time I went, which was a real joy, was when uh, my, w my wife and I, newly married, and we went to Disneyland. And Disneyland was just like, I don't care how much they charge you to get in here. This is worth it. No paint chipped anywhere. You couldn't find a weed in the whole place. 
everything is just a, in its place and a place for everything. Every person's doing what it's supposed to be. Everything is timed. Click, 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 click like this. My heart was soaring. <laughs> Apart from the rides and the characters and me sitting on Mickey's lap and all that stuff. It was just the whole... I'm just kidding about that. But, but I just loved it. And then you're on Pirates of the Caribbean and you're watching all of this thing and you can't believe that somebody can come up with this. And then your mind realizes there's a whole world of machinery under the ground making all of this happen. It must be like a city down there. Men and women in their uniforms, white and blue Disney-like with little hats on and short hair and no beards and just the way that it should be, like back in the 50s, you know. And so I, I love Disneyland for that. And sometimes, there's been a time or two, we've been there quite a few times where I've gone in and walked in and I saw maybe a little dry rot somewhere. My heart sinks. I just want to report it. See if I can get part of my money back because my experience has been detrimentally affected by virtue of seeing this. So I have an impossible standard related to them. So I like to see things like that. David, obviously, would have loved Disney. I'm just, I'm reading too much into it. Now. But he, so he lays all of this, uh, this structure out. And so he begins with the organization of uh, the religious leaders and military and other leaders. And so we're told now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 years old and above. And the number of individual males was 38,000. So we remember from the law of Moses, the Levites were the tribe that God chose of the 12 tribes of Israel to assist the priests in carrying the tabernacle through out of Egypt or through the, the wanderings and in the wilderness and all ultimately into the promised land all the way up to this day and so when the pillar of uh, of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night would move uh, the Levites not the priests the Levites they were kind of like the deacons of that day as opposed to the elders they would then put everything together all the furnishings all the sacrifices all the the tabernacle the tent break it down and they would then carry it so they provided the physical labor and uh, so David wanted to number them from the age of 30 uh, years and above and the law of Moses required that they be 30 years uh, old when they started and then at 50 years they kind of retired and so it was a 20 year band. It was a very, very physical work. Remember that we didn't have life expectancy in those days like we do today. At 50 years of age with hard labor uh, you were ready for uh, a break into something less physical. And so the number of the individual men among the Levites was 38,000. He then broke down these 38,000 and 24,000 were to look after the work of the house of the Lord. And so 24,000 men were devoted to the service, Levites were devoted to the service of the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. Wow, that's a lot of people. 6,000 of that 38,000 were officers and judges. Those were Levites who did not serve at the temple itself, but they were spread out through the land of Israel. People would have uh, kind of a dispute with a neighbor or something like that, and these men would be scattered throughout the land in order to then judge cases according to the law of Moses and to be a spiritual influence throughout the land. 4,000 were gatekeepers, and uh, at 4,000 praised the Lord. They were worship leaders with musical instruments, which I made, that is, they were supplied by David, said David, for giving praise. And David separated them into divisions among the sons of Levi, and Gershon, Kohath, and Merai of the Gershonites, uh, one of the lines of Levi, uh, Laadan and Shimei, the sons of Laadan, at the first uh, three in all and then the sons of Shimei they are listed there uh, and then we come all the way to verse 12 then there's the listing of uh, the sons of Kohath who are a part of all of this uh, numbering and then you go down to verse 21 and the sons of Merai uh, they also uh, are, are listed there in this numbering of the Levites and he'll return to that in order to um, address it a little more, uh, a little more fully, and then in verse 
21 or verse 24, David kind of lies, lays out kind of the redefined responsibilities of the Levites. So here, up to this point in time, the Levites, their work has been very physical. They have transported the tabernacle and its furnishings. They have assisted the priests in their work doing the heaviest of the physical labor, but they couldn't offer sacrifices or anything like that. The priests would do that. Well, now you no longer have a tent. Now you have a stationary building. And so what what's going to happen to these guys everything's kind of changed and so David recognized that and and so began to redefine their responsibilities given the change of the place of worship and these were the sons of Levi by their father's house the heads of the father's houses uh, as they were counted individually by the number of their names who did the work for the service of the house of the Lord from the age of 20 years and above. Now that's interesting because the law of Moses declared that the Levite in this capacity was to be between the age of 30 and 50. In other words, God wanted very, very mature people. They were handling the things of the Lord. Even though they weren't the priests, they were uh, very closely associated with the things of God and, and, and all. And then, but apparently the demand for the Levites under this new kind of structure was so great uh, that the age was lowered down to 20 years and above in order to provide those kind of numbers. For David said, The Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever. And also to the Levites, they shall no longer carry the tabernacle or any of the articles for its service. For by uh, the last words of David, the Levites were numbered from 20 years old and above. And so David established that new number. Because their duty was to help, so here there's responsibilities, their duty was to help the sons of Aaron. The, uh, the sons of Aaron were Levites also, but the sons of Aaron were priests. And so um, every uh, priest was a Levite. But not every Levite was a priest. You had to be of the family of Aaron in order to be a priest. Yeah, I know. Okay. So, uh, this, because their duty was to help the sons of Aaron in the service of the house of the Lord, in the courts and in the chambers, and the purifying of all holy things, and the work of the service of the house of the Lord. Uh, they assisted with the showbread, probably the baking of the showbread and all, though the priests would be the ones who would offer it. Also the fine flour for the grain offering with the unleavened cakes and what is baked in the pan with what is mixed and with all kinds of measures and sizes. And so they prepared all of these offerings um, and then so the priests didn't have to do it. They could simply be engaged in offering these things to the Lord. An added responsibility is that they were to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord and likewise at evening and at every presentation of a burnt offering to to the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons and on the set feasts by number according to the ordinance governing them regularly before the Lord. So part of Israel's worship in those days is that every morning at the tabernacle and then at the temple they would offer a burnt offering to the Lord. And so they would begin the day and end the day by re, uh, uh, symbolically re-consecrating uh, their life to God. And so part of what the Levites did is they provided the worship team that would provide the worship uh, for those two services each day in addition to the special days and the feast days. And that they should, verse 32, should attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting, the needs of the holy place, and the needs of the son of Aaron, their brethren, in the work of the house of the Lord. And so the, all of this work was to be done by the 24,000 uh, Levites who were mentioned there in verse 4. Now he moves on in chapter 24, the divisions of the priests and their assistants. Now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron and the sons of Aaron were Nadab and Abihu. We remember all the way back in Leviticus, they offered strange fire to the Lord and the Lord smote them uh, dead for that. And so those gentlemen did not have any, uh, anyone in their lineage, but Aaron had two other sons by the name of Eleazar 
and Ithamar. Nadab and Abihu died before their father. They had no children, and therefore the lines of the priests, they came through Eleazar and Ithamar. And then David with Zadok of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech of the sons of Ithamar divided them according to the schedule of their service, this great number of, of priests. And there were more leaders found of the sons of Eleazar than of the sons of Ithamar, and thus they were divided. Among the sons of Eleazar there were sixteen heads of their father's houses and eight heads of the father's houses among the sons of Ithamar. So twice as many priests from the, the lineage of Eleazar than from Ithamar. And so as a result uh, they, they were divided twice as many in uh, Eleazar's house and half as many in, in Ithamar's on the basis of fairness. And thus they were divided by lot, one group as another, for there were officials uh, for there were officials of the sanctuary and officials of the house of God from the sons of Eleazar and from the sons of Ithamar. And so everything was divided by lot. We're going to see this repeated over and over and over again. Now, when they cast lots in those days, when the children of Israel did that, it wasn't like rolling the dice. There was no gamble uh, involved in it. Uh, when they cast lots, uh, there's a proverb that speaks of the fact that the lots are, you know, kind of in the apron, but there's, they trusted God to then um, lead in the casting of the lots to determine his will. So you would have maybe here we've got the 16 and the 8, so we've got 24 different uh, men that are leaders in all of this. Their name would be written on a piece of pottery. It would be thrown on a larger pot. They would reach in, grab the name out one after the other by lot to ensure fairness, no favoritism. God is not a respecter of persons. No matter how old someone was or young someone was or wealthy or poor they were, that didn't matter. And they trusted God then to, to be involved in the lots. And God honored that under the old covenant. That when they said they trusted God to direct the lots to uh, make his will known, God honored that and he did that. Now in the New Testament, there isn't the casting of lots. They tried it very early on in the book of Acts and God completely disregarded the decision that was made on the basis of, uh, of the casting of lots. And because now we have the Holy Spirit to direct us in knowing what the will of the Lord is. And so these lots were cast in order to determine, um, uh, you know, which one of these, uh, the, the places that each of these groups within these families would have as it relates to their divisions of the priests. And so you ended up with 24 divisions total among the priests. They would rotate in, in those uh, 24 divisions depending on the greatness of their need. And from verses uh, 7 through 19, there is the results of the lot. Uh, we won't go into any of the names. It's very interesting, though, to, to at least notice in verse 10 that the eighth lot fell to Abijah. And that's fascinating uh, because you go all the way into the New Testament and in the New Testament uh, there's a man by the name of uh, Joseph who is, goes into um, he is a, a priest and it's his time to uh, minister a priest rather named, by the name of Zacharias father of John the Baptist and uh, he belonged to this eighth course, the course of Abijah. And he went and he's serving the Lord under that particular course of, of his family. And then the angel of the Lord uh, came to him in a vision and with a message about the birth of his son, John the Baptist, and the ministry that John would have and all. And so it all ties back even to the Old Testament here. That was the line that Zechariah uh, came from. Then in verse 19, this was the schedule of their service for coming into the house of the Lord according to their ordinance by the hand of uh, Aaron their father as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. And so they did these 24 groups of priests. They were under the uh, supervision of the high priests and uh, they rotated. Uh, so they weren't on duty all of the time. They rotated for that kind of longevity. Then there was the uh, lots drawn for the rest of the sons of Levi. 
And we're told uh, in verse 20, And the rest of the sons of Levi, the sons of Amram, uh, Shubael, of the sons of Shubael. Uh, there's just a whole bunch of names right here. And so the Levites were divided in a, in a similar manner. I will spare you uh, the attempts to pronounce all of their names, though I know they're great names. Verse 31, These also cast lots, just as their brothers, the sons of Aaron, did in the presence of King David, uh, Zadok, Ahimelech, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the priests and Levites. The chief uh, fathers did just as the younger brethren did. And so all of this was carefully overseen by officials. Again, being done by lot, so there would be no favoritism. Nobody could buy a higher position, uh, a more a favorable position in the work of the Lord, God was to make that choice. And it's, it's really a curse in, in God's work all through the ages where um, men and, uh, uh, are able to elevate themselves to positions that God never intended them to have and thus a terrible influence on the basis of getting the positions by money or kind of church politics or whatever that kind of thing might be. God made these choices and he could pick someone out of obscurity and give them the highest place and here's somebody else who's got years of experience and wealth and renown and all of that and they would have a lower spot. And so God got to do that choosing again. He's no respecter of persons, which gives you a lot of hope when you've been raised on the wrong side of the tracks that God doesn't take any of that other stuff into uh, consideration. All he knows is what he sees in a person's heart and then he makes that calling on the basis of that. I do like the fact here in verse 31 that special mention is made of the fact that in the dividing of these people that some were young and some were old and, and that by design God wanted those different age groups to work uh, together. Sometimes there's tension in the body of Christ, uh, tension on the part of uh, the younger or uh, within or younger leadership maybe within a church toward older uh, uh, leaders within a church or within a church movement or within the body of Christ as a whole. And so there can be this and sometimes tension of the older toward the younger. And, uh, and then you end up with churches that are filled with one age group and then other churches filled with this other age group and everybody thinks they're the better for it. God here takes and he wanted the younger and the older working together. Everybody has something to learn. Uh, from somebody else and the older had something that the the younger brought to the table and they needed that and the younger uh, had to recognize that the older brought something to the table that was important to the Lord as well and his choice here reflected that I I just heartily 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 dislike what I see in, in here more and more and more today and this whole idea of um, young and old in the body of Christ. I dislike it. I've been young. I came, to the, I came to Modesto as a young person. And I know what it was like to be in the community and people say, I can't believe that you're so young and you're pastoring a church. Nobody ever says that to me anymore which is perfectly fine. So I know what it is to be there and I know what it is to not be old but to be oldish getting a little bit older and I, I hate when I hear conversations that people are making decisions in the body of Christ of putting this person there or putting that person there on the basis of whether they're young or on the basis of whether they're old or on the uh, uh, to me that has no basis in a decision making at all it's who's called who's anointed who does God want to be in that place? And if it's an older person, great. If it's a younger person, great. That's entirely up to the Lord. But this kind of uh, age warfare that exists so strongly in our culture because we're a youth-dominated culture and that creeps into the body of Christ is very unseemly to me and it really disgusts me. Uh, and, and I see more and more and more and more of it. What matters is we need each other and 
and, and uh, we each bring something to the table in terms of iron sharpening iron with one another. Let me just stop here just for a moment and see how many pages. I'm not, that's not my prayer language. I'm just you know, groaning. I'll get a letter from somebody. Did you hear it? We put it on YouTube. Pastor Damien went into his prayer language at the end of the Sunday night service. Well, we better stop there tonight. And we'll pick up this whole organizational structure because there's no way I can even just encapsulate it and get through the three chapters to finish out um, and get to the closing couple of chapters, uh, which we'll look to maybe finish the entire book uh, next week. Let's stand together. You know, one of the reasons the worship team come forward would be great. One of the reasons I like that whole decent and an order thing, and I like the structure, and I love the attention to detail that, that is there, is that the world that I live in right now, you're probably in the same world. Wherever you go, there you are. I never liked the Grateful Dead. I never got that, but maybe you did. But anyway, as it gets more and more chaotic, and the Bible says that in the last days, immediately before Jesus returns, and then certainly right after the rapture, the Bible says the condition of the world is going to be such. It's going to be distress of nations with perplexity. The problems will become so big that there is no solution in man for those problems. I watch the decision-making that's being made nationally and internationally in this world, and I, I can't make heads or tails of it. It's so bad, it's so wrong, that I just have to look at it and say, there is a demonic element involved in it. And so, as the world gets crazier and crazier, and more and more hard to understand what in the world people are doing in these positions of power. I love to turn to the Word of God and to realize there is order, there is decency, it is to be reflected in the kingdom of God, even in the smallest of things, the baking of the bread for the offering of the showbread to the Lord. And it also reminds me of the fact, and I want to leave us with this tonight, because I want to leave us hopeful, because I know you feel much of what I feel as you watch the world today. It's what God said it would be before Jesus comes back, and He's coming back. I don't know when, but I'm on tiptoes, and I'm so ready to go. But one day, the world will be run, decently and in order. But that won't happen until Jesus comes back at His second coming. And do you realize that this world that is in such chaos, when it comes under His oversight, no more wars, righteousness will be enforced with a rod of iron. There will be no nonsense. There will be no sections of cities dominated by gangs. There will be no, none of this craziness that goes on in terms of crime and all these things and then it all gets uploaded on YouTube and we can watch how crazy we're all becoming all at the same time by the millions. He'll come back and this world is going to be run decently in an order. There's going to be peace for everyone. There's going to be enough food for everyone. You're not going to have half of entire nations slaughtered by the other half of the nation. God is a God of decency and an order. And so it gives me hope that it can be done and that it will be done and that it is a part of the world's future when Jesus comes back and establishes His kingdom. And I'm glad to be on the right side of that coming back or come back with him as Christians, having been in heaven during the uh, tribulation period, to be a part of establishing that reign. And I'm going to love wherever he puts me in that decent and in order reign. And that's probably going to be Carmel. <laughs> or somewhere in Israel, something like. I can, I can try and claim the best spots, can't I? Let's pray together.
Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the love of David for you. We don't say that we have the same love, but, Lord, we certainly understand it. We love the things of you. We love to want to make a difference for you. Power, money, material things, all this stuff that goes on, and the, all the things that could challenge him in his life for his relationship with you being supreme. And yet he walked through all of it, and all he cared about was you and the things of you. And Lord, we thank you that you can have that same supreme place in our hearts. And we just ask you to freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit right now tonight. And we just receive that from you. Those priorities, Lord, that strength, that comfort, that ability to process life around us with the sight and with the wisdom of your Holy Spirit. We thank you tonight for the privilege of being a part of your kingdom. And as, Lord, things get crazier and crazier in this world, that our lives can be in this world for people to see and to see order and to see us clothed and sitting at your feet and in our right mind when there's no other explanation for it but the fact that Jesus has impacted us. Use us this week, Lord, to give hope to people, to come and find a place of peace and a place of of stability, Lord, in their lives in the same place that we found it at your feet. Give us opportunity to share your truth in your gospel this week and may it just radiate from our lives. Jesus, we see that your coming is very, very near. We don't dare put a time or a date to it or anything like that. You'll pick that date and we'll be happy with the day of the rapture of the church. But we're excited, Lord, that it's drawing close. And the signs that you've given us in your word, they don't terrify us. They make us realize that you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, are coming for your church, Lord. And we thank you for the privilege of being a part of that church and the peace that is ours because of that. Lord, we love you tonight. We just say thank you for being our God and our Savior tonight. And we thank you in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, that's the biggest decision you'll make in life, the most important decision you'll make in life. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. I have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and for you to put your faith in Him for that forgiveness of sins. Have the Holy Spirit come inside of your life tonight and then begin a personal relationship with God and become a part of His kingdom. It's all there for the asking and the receiving. If you need prayer for anything this evening, they'd love to pray with you and pray for you. Mike, would you close us out?